1830, a decision was delivered by Judge Samuel Putnam, one of the 19th century's greatest jurists, who ruled in favor of the trustee's actions. All that can be required of a trustee to invest is that he shall conduct himself faithfully and exercise a sound discretion. He is to observe how men of prudence, discretion, and intelligence manage their own affairs, not in regard to speculation, but in regard to the permanent disposition of their funds, considering the probable income as well as the probable safety of the capital to be invested. Trustees should not be held to make good on losses in the depreciation of stocks or the failure of the capital itself, which they held in trust, provided they conduct themselves honestly and discreetly and carefully, according to the existing circumstances in the discharge of their trusts. If this were held otherwise, no prudent man would run the hazard of losses which might happen without any neglect or breach of good faith. This landmark decision quickly became commonly referred to as the prudent man rule. It has been the cornerstone of the legal relationship between professional money managers and their clients. And it also has shaped the unofficial and implied dynamics of this often complex relationship. The prudent man rule has been interpreted in many ways since 1830, with implications that remain to this day. While providing money managers leeway in investment judgment, Putnam's decision also helped establish the criteria for a manager's responsibilities to clients. Putnam's declaration that managers must conduct themselves honestly and discreetly and carefully has in itself prompted many lawsuits through the years. The fact that the prudent man rule was furnished by a Boston judge has geographic significance in the historical development of money management. By the early 1800s, the Boston financial scene already was an established center for professional portfolio managers. Just as New York was developing into America's primary center for stock trading and investment banking, the so-called Boston trustee also was evolving into an important business tradition. In the early 20th century, this led to the creation of the mutual fund concept, an idea first put to practical use in Boston. In fact, one of Judge Samuel Putnam's descendants, George Putnam, became a pioneer in the mutual fund field by establishing Boston-based Putnam Investments in the 1920s. Financial journalist Diana Henriquez traces the early development of the Boston trustee. When the 19th century opened, Boston's commercial giants were the men who had made their fortunes by opening the trade routes to the east or by harnessing the power of the regional waterways to build mighty textile plants. By mid-century, the laurels went to the daring financiers who built vast railroad networks or mining operations out of scraps of paper that changed hands on the nation's fledgling stock exchanges. But as the century rolled toward its closing days, Boston had become less a producer of new money than a guardian of old money. The paladin of financial Boston was the private trustee, 
the man who tended the legendary captain's treasure chest and the dead financier's portfolios, year in and year out, for an annual fee. One 19th century beneficiary of the Boston trustee and of the latitude offered by the prudent man definition was the estate of a great 18th century money pundit, Ben Franklin. Franklin had earmarked some of his estate for charity and directed that the funds be split, half to be managed by a trustee in Boston and half by a trustee in Philadelphia. One hundred years after his death in 1791, the money left to the Philadelphia trustee was less than one-third the amount accumulated under the stewardship of the Boston trustee. The Philadelphia endowment had been managed under the most conservative procedures, with preserving capital as the sole goal. The Boston trustee, using the more liberal concept of the prudent man rule, was a real-world proof of the value of giving investment freedom to a trustee. Even people investing for the shorter term came to recognize the potential of the Boston trustee approach. And this became the model that has shaped the basic concept of money management in the United States. But just as Boston has been the birthplace of innovations in professional money management and the scene of some of the profession's proudest moments, Boston also has been the birthplace of some of the greatest scandals in the money management industry. Perhaps most significant among Boston's infamous money managers was Charles Ponzi, who in 1920 embarked on a money management swindle that robbed millions of dollars from thousands of trusting people. The phrase Ponzi scheme has been famous ever since. Financial historian Matthew Josephson recaps the Ponzi story in the book The Money Lords. An ex-convict named Charles Ponzi, who had formerly been a peddler and a waiter, one day decided to become a wizard of finance. He had a plan that seemed simple and foolproof. Armed with $150 in cash, he advertised his willingness to borrow money from the public at 50% interest for 45 days and 100% for 90 days. By taking advantage of differences in official and actual rates of exchange, he planned to use the money to buy international postal coupons in one country where the rate was low and sell them in another for a higher price. It was not a bad idea, but it became complicated in operation and could not work on a large scale. Ponzi paid interest promptly on the money he received, but soon was reduced to paying it with fresh capital that came in floods. The more investors he attracted, the deeper he went into debt. After he had taken in nearly $10 million, and issued notes for more than $14 million in eight months. His operation was exposed as a fraud, shut down by authorities of Massachusetts, and Ponzi was soon in jail. Ponzi's methods probably did not originate with him, and they most certainly did not end with his arrest and conviction. Pyramid schemes remain perennially effective in virtually every corner of the world, often luring and fooling otherwise sophisticated investors. One spectacular example from the late 20th century featured a seemingly altruistic investment pool for charities called the Foundation for New Era Philanthropy. 
Headed by a former drug counselor named John Bennett, the pool followed the classic Ponzi style from 1989 until the scheme was revealed in 1995. In the spring of 1997, when Bennett finally stopped trying to evade prosecution, the New York Times summarized the details of the fraud. After trying to blame phantom voices that he said gave him bad financial advice, the man accused of cheating universities and charities of more than $100 million pleaded no contest today to federal charges of fraud and money laundering. For six years, beginning in 1989, John G. Bennett was a prominent figure in the arts world, celebrated for his promise to double the investment of any nonprofit group within six months. The unusually high dividends, he said, came from wealthy philanthropists who wanted to make anonymous donations to charity. Hundreds of universities and art institutions signed on, including the Philadelphia Orchestra, the American Red Cross, and the Salvation Army, and institutions like Harvard, Princeton, and Brown Universities. But what Bennett had done, prosecutors assert, was to pay off earlier investors with money from new ones, while skimming off a substantial portion for himself. The New Era fund scandal was not isolated. In the mid-1990s, the chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission, Arthur Levitt, warned of the increasing rise of Ponzi-style schemes. He noted that it's difficult to uncover the fraudulent schemes until it's too late to recover money for victims. By contrast, other money managers in the Boston trustee tradition have been role models for the best that the field has to offer. One dominant figure was Paul Cabot, often referred to as the father of modern investment management. Cabot was newly graduated.